0: Silver Spoons. The long breakwater, slick with seaweed, curled into Long Island Sound like a question mark. Telly and his father were fishing to the left of it, 20 yards apart, wading in bathing suits and sweatshirts in the warm froth of the incoming August tide. His father was closest to the protective arm of the large black rocks that had created a backflow For the alewives driving the bluefish into a feeding frenzy at such times the blues would strike anything like his father telly who had turned 14 that spring was throwing a gleaming silver spoon with a treble hook for a tail but his heart wasn't in it even though his father had coptered home from new york for this annual father-son fishing weekend and was coptering out again on Monday morning. Telly himself, with his scoutmaster's permission, had abandoned his counselor position at Camp Wampanoag for the event. His scoutmaster knew that Telly's father would have him returned after the weekend, by limo, in time for Monday's reveille. Even though this stretch of beach on the Connecticut shore was deserted, his father owned it, and they had the Blues all to themselves, Telly would rather be talking baseball. He'd only had a week at home after returning from Andover for the summer before reporting to his Boy Scout camp, where, as his father had done, his goal was to make Eagle Scout by the time he was 18. In the spring, he'd made the varsity baseball team as a freshman, something even his dad hadn't done batting 400 and knocking in 24 runs, and he'd been waiting for this very weekend to give his father the details. But when the Blues were running, his father could only talk about the Blues. Grasping the stiff fiberglass rod with both hands, Telly held it over his right shoulder and let fly with an overhead cast, sending the silver spoon straight out toward the red sun on the watery horizon. In these waning moments of dusk, if he watched closely, he could actually see the sun moving, those last few feet in its quick descent, dropping into its western slot. But his lure hit with a splash, sending up a glistening spray that distracted him, and the water boiled as the bluefish swarmed. Telly knew he should have jerked the rod then, setting the hook Any such motion at that moment would have snagged the blue, even if the fish missed the lure. But he let the lure drop to the bottom, untouched, watching the sun sink instead. "'Got one!' his father shouted. Looking to his right, Telly saw his father drag a large blue toward shore, thirty inches at least, then swing it up onto the beach beyond the line of debris where he clubbed it with the butt of his surf-casting rod until it lay still. Then, like the surgeon that he was, he deftly removed the silver spoon with the pliers waiting on his large tackle box and waded back into the water to continue fishing. How's this for a swing, Telly said suddenly, holding his fishing rod parallel to the surface like a baseball bat and taking a cut at an imaginary fastball but the action sent the lure toward his father. In an effort to abort the cast, Telly pulled his elbows to his side, causing the line to snap like a whip and break. Then his father dropped his rod into the shallow surf and sank to his knees. Free of its silver spoon, Telly's line danced unfettered in the offshore breeze, a thin flicker in the last of the evening's light. Waiting over, Telly found his lure perched on his father's shoulder blade like a silver canary, only one of its three hooks visible. His father was nauseous, having felt the thud against his shoulder without realizing what had happened. Shit, Dad, Telly said. I snagged you. I'm so sorry. I." Gaining his feet slowly, his father pushed past him and struggled to shore while Telly retrieved a lost fishing rod. Take me to Yale, New Haven. It was long dark by the time his father emerged from the ER. Several men had been admitted just before him, suffering from gunshot wounds. Telly had sipped a Coke in the meantime, although he knew the caffeine would keep him up all night. He wouldn't be able to sleep anyway. But at least his father was smiling now, as if the shock to his shoulder had somehow put the weekend into perspective. Did you call your mother, he said. Of course. Tell her about the big fish you caught? Telly tried to laugh. Yeah. He handed his father the keys to the Escalade, but his father shook his head. Nah, you go ahead. If we get stopped, I've got seven stitches and a tetanus shot for an excuse. It's late. There won't be much traffic. As Telly pulled the vehicle onto I-95, his father, after remaining silent for several long minutes, spoke suddenly, Listen, Telly, there's something I've got to say to you. But Telly wasn't paying attention. He'd escaped into the enjoyment of his time behind the wheel. His scoutmaster let him drive the camp jeep, and compared to that, which had a gear shift on the floor, the Escalade was a piece of cake. Are you listening, son? Of course. Telly hated it when his father called him son. It always sounded so distant, always signaled something serious. Your mother is pregnant. What? She's pregnant. We never thought it could happen after all the trouble she had with conceiving you. But she's so... Is she going to have a... Telly looked at his father, who had a satisfied look on his face. No, she wants to have this baby. She wants another son, just like you. His father was smiling. Telly returned his eyes to the highway. Just don't give him a name like Telemachus. His father ignored the remark, saying, I, on the other hand, would love a daughter. Daddy's little girl. What about you, son, brother, or sister?
1: Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks, as always, for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Happy Almost Father's Day to all the dads out there. We hope you enjoy these dad-themed stories. You just heard Claude Smith's story called Silver Spoons. You might remember we featured Claude's story R&R a few weeks ago for our Memorial Day episode. Claude Clayton Smith, professor emeritus of English at Ohio Northern University, lives in Madison, Wisconsin, with his wife of 40 years, who is his first reader and editor. He's the author of seven books, including an historical novel, The Stratford Devil, Two Little Golden Books, The Cow and the Elephant, and The Gull That Lost the Sea, and four books of creative nonfiction, Ohio Setback, Lapping America, Red Men in Red Square, and Quarter Acre of Heartache. He's also co-editor slash translator of The Way of Kinship and Meditations After the Bear Feast. His own books have been translated into five languages, including Russian and Chinese. In addition, he has published a novella, Garbage Cans, a mini chapbook of poetry, love notes, plus more than 50 individual poems in journals and anthologies, along with a dozen short stories, several dozen essays, and works of creative nonfiction. Four of his plays have been selected for staging and competition, one of which went on to a professional production. He holds a D.A. from Carnegie Mellon, an M.F.A. in fiction from the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, an M.A.T. from Yale, and a B.A. from Westland. For further information, including an interview with the author, see his website, claudeclaytonsmith.wordpress.com. We'd like more flash fiction stories like Claude's to start off our episodes, so if you're a flash fiction writer, please contact us at jim at secondhandpodcast.com with flash fiction in the subject line. In general, we're always accepting submissions, and you can check out our guidelines at secondhandpodcast.com. Next up we have Doug Hoxstra's story, Mr. X. Raised in Chicago and residing in Nashville with a BA from DePaul University and MED from Belmont University, Hoekstra is also a working wordsmith. Short stories, essays, and poems have appeared in numerous literary journals throughout the U.S. Hoekstra has two book-length collections to his name, The Tenth Inning, 2015, and Bothering the Coffee Drinkers, 2007, winner of an Independent Publisher Award, Bronze Medal for fiction. He lives in the music city with his son, Jude. Hoxtra is also a singer-songwriter troubadour who has released eight critically acclaimed albums of original material on labels on both sides of the pond, touring throughout the U.S. and Europe, performing at bookstores, coffee houses, clubs, libraries, pubs, festivals, radio stations, and castles, solo and with combos in tow. Highlights include a Nashville Music Award and Independent Music Award nominations, lots of top ten lists, and many groovy times. As the pundits used to say, a lot of people write songs, Hockstra writes 5-Minute Worlds, from Wired magazine. You can find more about him on Facebook at Doug Hockstra Music, or on his website, doughoekstra.wordpress.com. That's d-o-u-g-h-o-e-k-s-t-r-a.wordpress.com. Here's Doug's story, Mr. X. Part 1 Scott walked through the tall grass beyond the field, shoes covered with lonesome evening dew. As he climbed the weather-worn bleachers, he surveyed the empty diamond and sat down purposefully on the hard wood, opened his book, and pulled deep inside his thoughts. He barely noticed her arrival. I'll sit next to you, she said, lightly, matter of fact. Her name was Barbara, slim, petite, with long chestnut hair and wide brown eyes. She wore designer sandals, and every toe was a perfectly manicured and polished bright blue. They had gotten to know each other a bit at their son's school, through the morass of extracurricular parent activities and field trips that most moms, and some dads, dove into with gusto. Scott loved it. The routine gave his life some sort of social structure. Many kids from the school now played baseball together as well. How'd the family ski trip go? Scott asked. Great! We all had such a good time. It was great to be back east. That's where my family still is, and I just love it. We all stayed at my grandmother's house, which is where I used to go in summers. My friend's niece got married, too, in one of those old country churches. She was a flurry of nostalgic description. It's how I grew up. It's home, Scott said. Yes, it's home. Sometimes I wish... Lots of people in Nashville waxed poetic about their hometowns. It was a place founded on old money and thrust into the 21st century with the help of many a friendly carpetbagger, to use a 19th century term. Barbara's husband, however, was a native. Apparently, they first dated while students at Vanderbilt. Scott met him once. He seemed a nice enough guy, though it was hard to say. Dads tended to fly in and out of the school social scene. She said he traveled a lot. "'Did you do anything for spring break?' she asked. "'I took Sean to see my folks. Bay Area. "'It was a town no one had heard of, not far from San Francisco.' "'Oh, that's nice,' she said. "'I love it, except it takes so long to get there.' "'The bleachers filled up with other parents, "'coffees in hand, gray on the temples. "'I don't like to travel.' Long flights, long drives, I get antsy. She gave Scott a long look as he listened, capturing his countenance through time. You probably like it. I do, actually. Glad she brought it up, comfortable in his reply. Typically, he avoided evaluation, which made it difficult to disagree with people at times. I like the time bubble, the time to disconnect, get away from email and computers and whatnot. At the airport, my son and I are just there, in the moment, together. You're lucky, she said. Scott watched his son in the outfield with two other boys, arms outstretched, telling a story, joking about something, all of them laughing together. He smiled. His son had unknowingly given him the gift of presence. It's funny you say that, Scott said. I was just looking at Sean and thinking... You know, most dads. She reached over and tapped him on the shoulder. Oh, I know, he's a sweet boy. But I meant you're lucky that travel doesn't bother you. I bet you do a lot of people watching. She was charming, and maybe a little crazy in a wildish way, cocking her head playfully to the side as she spoke. You know what I noticed in the airport? People watching? He teased. No, what? Everyone in the security line at the airport looked so gloomy, waiting. I mean, I know it's a drag to go through and take off your shoes and all that, but at the same time... The starting nine ran onto the field, wobbly but excited. All the parents clapped. At the same time, everyone is either going to meet their loved ones, or they're coming from seeing their loved ones, or they're going off to a great adventure, so you'd think they'd be excited. A couple innings went by, and he and Barbara chatted easy, bantering but not quite flirting, words rising and falling with the right amount of emphasis, and then silence. She had on a fetching perfume, just the right amount, and when the wind blew, her essence drifted over Scott like a wistful dream. It wasn't a scent he recognized, but it still reminded him of times gone by and conversations long forgotten. Sometimes words mean nothing in the context of presence. You don't watch TV, do you? Scott thought for a moment, as if this was a question he had to be careful about answering. He didn't even have cable. The television was only for movies and baseball games. But he didn't want to come off as a snob. Uh, well, not much, but why? I'm just hooked on Mad Men. Well, I know that show, he said. I've never seen it, but I know friends who like it. He thought of one of the dates he'd had in the last five years. It reminds me of my grandfather, she said. He worked on Wall Street, he'd stay in Manhattan all week, and then go back to his family on weekends. I almost bought a Mad Men couch on Craigslist, he offered. It was advertised as such, and it was great. Long and sleek, but pink. A lot of people have Mad Men parties. Really? She lit up and poked him on the shoulder again. How do you have a madman party? Well, you dress up, serve martinis or something, make it very swanky and retro, I guess. Hmm, she said. That sounds interesting. They fitted together well there on the bleachers. Part 2 After he put his son to bed, Scott went into his home office to see if anything from work came in the past few hours. He made twice as much money as he did on the day his wife left him, but he seemed to have three times as much work to do as a result. He figured it was compensation for all the years he worked part-time, designing websites for laundry money. But he couldn't complain. There was an email from Barbara, with FYI in the subject header. He opened it first. Be careful what you wish for. It said, Next Saturday, I'm having a madman party in my house. Invites go out in a day or so, but you can RSVP now. See you there, I hope. Scott felt her fingers poke him, virtually, on the shoulder. He checked his calendar. His son was with his mother that weekend, so he could make it. It was funny. Since the divorce, he'd gotten to know a lot of moms, single and married, because of that ever-present school culture. He noticed they rarely used the we word when referring to their house, car, or kids. Scott remembered the time his lawyer, a brusque man, cut him off in mid-sentence and said, Dude, when you talk about your child, it's our child, not my child. Ever. Don't forget that. Scott never had. Judging from the email, it was hard to say whether this was her party, her husband's party, or their party. If it was her party, he was there. If it was their party, that was fine too. If it was his party, he'd be a fish out of water. But there was no way to tell. He RSVP'd. Not guest list plus one, but guest list plus zero. The days rolled by. Full of making breakfast, packing lunches, taking his son to school, going to work, picking his son up, talking together over dinner, playing board games, flying kites, watching movies. Scott was an all-in guy, especially with his son. There was another game that week, but Barbara didn't show. Her babysitter took her son to the game, because she had to take her other son to his game? Something like that. When Saturday came, he found himself in a familiar place. Sean had gone to his mother's the night before, and now Scott was madly attacking all the cleaning, groceries, and laundry he'd put off the previous two weeks. While they had been engrossed in the considerable magic of their day-to-day activities, He was working hard to catch up, increasingly feeling the need to chill out that night. In fact, the idea of sitting down to read a book felt like heaven. He thought of excuses for bailing on the party. Illness? Work project? Maybe something to do with his son. That was always good. But, no. She knew his son was with his mom. Around 4pm, he got a text. Did you say guest list plus zero? Could this be right? Affirmative, came his rapid response. Me too, she said. What the hell did that mean? Part 3 Scott didn't have much in the way of vintage clothes, so he dug out a pair of black pants and a rockabilly shirt, subdued shades of purple with thin white stripes. That would do. He drove across town and into Nashville's Belle Meade area, home to the richest of the rich. This was the first time he'd been to Barbara and the Senator's place, but he knew the neighborhood. It sounded like a sitcom he laughed to himself. Barbara and the Senator. Their house was on Linwood, a block, if you want to call it that, of expansive two-story mansions with large columns, circular driveways, and manicured lawns. Many had added solar roofs, greenhouses, and swimming pools, antebellum south with upgrades. As he pulled into their driveway, an olive-skinned man, in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, ran up to the car. Fale? Sure. A tiki bar bordered the driveway, four Polynesian carvings beckoning in their native tongue. Two people sat on tall stools, surrounded by pink plastic flamingos. She wore clam diggers and brown glasses. He had on a white suit and black bow tie. They sipped their drinks and spoke animatedly. A summer haze fell over the lawn. Scott gave a quick little wave of the hand to the couple, strolled past them to the front door, and rang the bell. The door swung open, and Barbara appeared, gesturing with her arm. Entree, she said with a flourish. Welcome to my home. She wore a pencil skirt and a blouse with a plunging neckline, accentuating a deep tan that he'd never noticed before. Where's your plus zero? she joked, poking him in the arm. She ran off with your plus zero, he quipped. That's impossible, she said, because my plus zero is in DC. You never know. She ignored his comeback. What would you like to drink? Pink squirrel? A blue Hawaiian? I'm drinking a Manhattan. But I bet you'd like an old fashioned. What the hell did that mean? I'll have a stinger. Truth be told, Scott had no idea what was in a stinger, but he felt like it was the time to be manly, and, more specifically, a madman. He was definitely in over his head. Let me get it for you, she said. Back in a tick. She disappeared, and he was left to wander around the foyer by himself. Besides the couple on the lawn, at the tiki bar, he'd yet to spot another guest. Chatter drifted his way from down the hall, gentle clanking voices of guests congregating in the kitchen. That was a good sign, because when he used to go to parties with his ex, they always rated how good the scene was by how many people wound up in the kitchen. That's an A, he thought. Barbara came bounding down the hall with his drink. Here's your stinger, darling, she said, poking him on the shoulder and letting her fingers linger just a moment longer than normal. I'll be back in a bit, but make yourself at home. The kitchen is down this hallway, where everyone is right now, lord knows why. But there are also a few people out on the patio, which is just to the right of the kitchen, and of course you went by the tiki bar. Isn't that a lovely touch? She giggled. Oh, the senator will be upset about how much this costs. Guy told me he should have canceled his trip. What can you do? She shrugged. He travels a lot. That must be difficult, Scott replied. Eh, sometimes. She smiled. But you know how it goes, Scott. And then she was gone. Scott headed towards the kitchen, taking his time because the hallway was lined with photographs, top to bottom, of the senator and Barbara with each other, with Al Gore, with Vince Gill and Amy Grant, with little Jimmy Dickens at the Grand Ole Opry, with David Keith, that Nashville actor everyone forgets but everyone has seen in some movie or another, and so on. The voices grew louder. Personally, I think the narrative structure is dead. If you look at Facebook and Twitter and at school,
0: can't even
1: Particularly the charter school movement is the civil rights struggle of our generation. And the district is dropping the ball up and down for the last five years. And we must look to the long view, which is the only view you can have. It is a house of cards, I tell you, a house of just cards. just got this new app. Check it out. I had my assistant stand in line for three hours to get it for me. Can you believe that? Three hours. how the visuals look. I refuse to see a great Gatsby that equates hot jazz with Beyonce. Generally at parties, Scott noticed that the men congregated in one place, and the women in another. The men were the ones talking about markets and movies and iPads. The women usually talked about their kids. He preferred the latter, but the truth was, he lived somewhere in between, looking for balance, equanimity. From where he stood, the voices drifting into the hallway were mixed like birds, distinct songs, calls that could only be understood by the other. They spoke the language of confidence. Scott turned left at the kitchen door and headed down another hallway of photos, all family shots, which he found much more interesting. Most of them were of Freddie, Barbara's son, and Sean's friend, by himself in various outfits, staged and spontaneous. Like Sean, it looked like he'd been a chubby baby and stretched out a little bit each year. In every picture, even the one where he was undoubtedly forced to sit on Santa's lap, he was smiling. He had a great smile, and Scott noticed that came from his mother. At the end of the hallway, Scott reached an open door. Inside, Freddy sat on a futon, watching Star Wars. Hey, Sean's dad, he said cheerily. Is Sean with you? I'm afraid not. He's with his mom tonight. Oh. But your mom was nice enough to invite me to the party. The television was set in an entertainment center, shelves lined with DVDs, knickknacks, books, games, many of which were familiar. He couldn't resist eyeballing the names on the spines. Hmm, let's see. Sellers of Catan, that's a good one. Clue, yes. Monopoly. Scott mused about. Do you like board games? Absolutely. Sean and I have game night every week. Really? That's cool. Freddy took the flipper and paused the movie. What's your favorite? It's hard to say, but I think I like Scotland Yard, or I do these days. Me too, Freddy said. Want to play? Scott wished his son were there. He missed him so, even though it was only 12 hours since he'd seen him last. He suddenly wanted to leave the party. Or... He wanted to get back to the party. Or maybe he wanted to find Barbara. Well? I love Scotland Yard, but it's a three-person game, really. It's better if you have one person as Mr. X and two policemen trying to find him. As soon as the words left his lips, Scott regretted them. The worst part about growing up was the erosion of the possible. Appropriately, however, Freddie ignored Scott's remark and headed straight for the possible, unfazed. That's okay, Sean's dad, I can go get my brother, and the three of us can play. Okay, Freddy, you're on. Freddy ran to get his brother. Scott took a sip of his stinger and winced. A peace lily sat in the corner, and Scott poured his stinger into the flower pot, just like in the movies. Unlike in the movies, the plant didn't immediately wilt. But, then again, it was a peace lily. Freddie and his brother came running back, and the three of them sat down to play. They insisted that he be Mr. X. So, he put the hat on, and began to plot his adventures around London. Sean would love this, he thought, sadly. I wish my dad were here, Freddie blurted out. He would love this. I bet he would, Freddie. Because he's a real spy. That's why he's in Washington all the time, you know? and then Freddie lowered his eyes. Don't tell anyone, because it's very dangerous and being a senator is his cover. The noise from the party grew louder, and Scott got up to close the door. He sat back down, cross-legged, pulling on the brim of his cap to hide his moves from Freddie and his brother. Part 4 The three of them played Scotland Yard once through. Scott, as Mr. X, escape capture. Round two had just begun when the door flew open. There you are, Barbara said, referencing Scott, not Freddy. It's beautiful outside. You need to come join the party, she added. Freddy frowned. It's okay, Freddy. Your mother did invite me. I should spend more time at the party. One of you can be both detectives and the other can take over my moves. He followed Barbara out of the room, where she grabbed his hand by the wrist and led him into the hallway, pulling him in her direction. Her perfume drifted his way. It was suddenly very quiet. Where is everyone? Oh, most of them have left, she said, stopping. While you were playing games, they were having fun. She cast her eyes downwards, just as he'd seen Freddy do. But there are a couple stragglers outside, playing backgammon and sitting by the pool. They faced each other in the narrow hallway. Something the matter? No, I just... Scott reached out and brushed her bangs to the side so he could better see her eyes, dark and inviting. She took a sip of her drink and smiled. He felt her pull. They were quiet for a moment. She was waiting. You know... When we were playing Scotland Yard, Freddy said a funny thing. That the senator... Scott forced the words. That his dad was a spy, Scott said. That is a funny thing, but you know how kids are with their imaginations. She laughed and spun away. And, in a way, we're all spies, aren't we? And we never know who's spying on who. What do you mean? Look at all these photos, she said, moving down the hall. We just go round and round and meet each other and walk into each other's lives and spy on them for a moment and, oh, I don't know what I'm saying. She came back and drew closer, brushing up against him. It depends, he said, the stupidest comeback imaginable. She closed her eyes anyway, and like the passing of time, inevitable, he kissed her. It was the moment. That was nice, she said. He kissed her again, as slowly and delicately as possible. That was even nicer. She opened her eyes. I'm so bad, she said, as she put her arms around his neck. I'm so bad. Another kiss. Well, Scott said, finally, don't brag about it. She laughed. The senator is probably doing the very same thing right now. I thought he didn't like madmen. Very funny. You know what I mean. You're very beautiful tonight. Well, I mean, not just tonight, all the time, but particularly tonight. He paused. I'm sorry. Don't be, she said. It's just us. Scott wasn't sure if she was talking about them or her marriage to the senator. He thought her eyes were misty, but it could have been the light, playing tricks. Sometimes, he said, kissing her again, thinking of the past, present, and future. Tears are like little hearts, upside down. She put her hand on his chest and began unbuttoning his shirt. Interesting, she said. But what does that have to do with anything? Part 5 Soon they were on a bed, in a guest room, he assumed. She had slipped out of her dress quickly, and he was naked to the waist, touching her, kissing her breasts, letting his tongue linger on her belly, tracing the curves. He had forgotten the simple pleasures that come from giving in just that way. He took his time, immersed in the pleasure of the present, memorizing the way she felt under his fingertips, a pathway back to somewhere he'd felt but never been. There was an ease to the way they talked, the way they kissed, and the way they danced. Scott returned to the perfect spot where her right leg met her hip and kissed it again, gently, as she moaned ever so slightly, with sweet breaths of punctuation. Then he lifted his head and studied the little heart-shaped tattoo on the opposite side where her left leg met her hip. It was red and faded, and as he circled around kissing her, he pondered whether it indeed looked like a tear. He looked at her again, Differently, lovingly. And then, he began to think. Too much. Listen, Barbara, he said, stopping and sitting up. You're lovely, but I can't do this. Just enjoy the moment, Scott, she said, arching her body and tugging at his belt buckle, pulling him towards her again. I can't, I mean, I am enjoying this, but... Scott paused. Ashamed at his own tendency to be uber-responsible. The moment is great, but one moment leads to another, you know? So? She smiled. You're great, and this is great, it's just that, I mean, I could, but I can't. He stumbled. It's late, and I've got to get Sean in the morning. I don't know. He stroked her arm softly, aware of his babbling. There's you and your family, but it's more than that. It's just that I'm an all-in guy, and I know that... What was that Sinatra song? He reached over again and sang in her ear, softly. All or nothing at all. If it's love, there is no in-between. Unlike Sinatra, Scott stopped to take a breath. Why begin, then cry for something that might have been... She closed her eyes as he sang. It's okay, dear. I understand, she reassured him. You're so lovely, he added. But tomorrow is still tomorrow. She sat up and gathered her things. It's okay, really. You're sweet and kind and maybe some other time the stars will align. She poked him in the shoulder as she stood up. Scott knew there would never be another time. The moment had come and gone. He wasn't wild about the idea of verging into homewrecker territory, no matter how much he ached for her, so he knew he did the right thing. Technically. But, as he drove home that night, he couldn't help but wonder if he had just copped out. Maybe he was afraid. Or worse yet, he couldn't give himself grace for what he felt. He wasn't sure. Part 6 On Wednesday, it rained, and the game was postponed. By Saturday, they were back on the field, although the weather was damp and threatening. Barbara came and sat next to Scott, as usual. They made small talk for a little while. Not exactly awkward, not exactly comfortable, as they regained their footing. So, is the senator back? Scott finally asked. Yes, indeed. He got back yesterday. She pulled a light blanket out of her bag and laid it over her bare legs. It was a patterned throw, spirals upon spirals, like a fractal in nature or a flower head. He missed a great party, Scott joked. Indeed. She poked him in the shoulder while her eyes gleamed. The starting nine took the field, gangly and excited. Freddy really liked playing Scotland Yard with you, she said. It was fun. He and Sean should play. They could come over, you could bring his brother, so there's three of them. That'd be nice. She paused. But I have to tell you something first. And it's kind of important, and I've been waiting to ever since the party, really. Scott grew nervous. She was going to bring up their moment. Maybe Freddie saw them in the hallway. Or maybe Barbara said something to the senator in a fit of guilt. Scott wondered if he would be audited next year. She scooted closer and fiddled with the blanket, rearranging it to give him a corner. The other parents were oblivious, talking, texting, or yelling at their kids to cover second base. He smelled her perfume as she cupped a hand and whispered, Freddy's dad really is a spy, she said. Then she pulled back and cocked her head to the side in just that way, grinning just a little bit. Her eyes were clear and deep. No, Scott said, exaggerating. Yes, she replied. Indeed. Scott let his hand drop and traced one of the spiral patterns in the fabric, feeling her ever so slightly beneath. Well, I don't remember saying anything incriminating, he joked, throwing a line. They fitted well together as they watched her son Freddie get thrown out at second base. Maybe, she replied as the umpire raised his arm. But I'd say that one's too close to call. And tomorrow had become tomorrow. Lastly, we have Dennis Thompson's story, Greetings Black Wolf. Dennis Thompson is a former U.S. Postal Service letter carrier and horse handicapper. He now teaches writing and film at Des Moines Area Community College. His work has appeared in Mississippi Review, Collier Literary Review, Out of Line, Writings on Peace and Social Justice, and Literary Orphans. His fiction, Jesus in the Eighth Race, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. His story, I Will Never Cut My Hair, Harley Major, is forthcoming in The MacGuffin. Here's Dennis Thompson reading his story, Greetings, Black Wolf.
2: Greetings, Black Wolf. A lone wolf's howl echoed from the tree line across the small pasture. Sound waves trailed through the crack window of the small cabin near the edge of Red Lake Nation. Merrick Jarnavan stirred from a fitful sleep. Nights after his treatments, he endured sporadic rest intertwined with semi-lucid dreams. His head and body, weak and heavy, nausea from the four-drug infusion that day caused his stomach to churn and turn. He reached for the compazine, popped a pill, and sipped water. The dark one-room cabin was lit by a single candle where his 89-year-old grandfather, Harley Major, sat and rocked, watching his movement. Merrick and everyone else in Red Light Nation called the old man Pops. People who didn't know Pops thought he was in his 60s. Small and agile, he moved quickly and with purpose. Pops wore 1950s-style Chiron-Ronser glasses and kept his long silvery-gray hair in a ponytail. Pops, did you hear a wolf howl? Did you hear one, Merrick? His grandfather tended to answer a question with a question, a trait that had taken him time to get used to since he'd moved in with Pops six months earlier. I was dreaming about a horse. It was running circles in the clearing between the cabin and the timber. I thought I heard a wolf. I'm not sure if I was dreaming or actually heard it. I heard the wolf, too. In your dream, was it a gray or black wolf? I didn't see the wolf, only the horse. What color was the horse? Brown, a chestnut brown. Pops nodded, then moved to the bed. He felt Merrick's head and smiled. No fever. How's your stomach feel? Sick. Pop sat on the edge of the bed. So you didn't see the wolf in your dream? No, I remember being afraid for the horse. Pops moved the small metal bucket closer to the bed and covered Merrick with a blanket. I'll make some tea to settle your stomach, Pop said. Uncle Walter brought his medicine bread for you this afternoon after we got home. You can eat some once your stomach settles. Uncle Walter was Pop's go-to medicine man. He wasn't Anishinaabe like Pop's and Merrick, but he was native. Pop's maintained Uncle Walter was Nakoda and had been adopted as a baby by a family in Bemidji. To Pop's, Uncle Walter was as good or better than most of the tribe members he'd grown up with. His medicine bread, a blend of whole wheat and Uncle Walter's herbs and spices, became a staple for Merrick during his chemotherapy. Merrick wasn't sure about the bread's legal status, but it was medicinal and helped him deal with the side effects. Pops brought Merrick the cup of tea. We saw a chestnut stallion running the fence in a pasture on the way home from your infusion. Merrick nodded. Maybe that explains the dream, he thought. Merrick Jarnovan had only recently learned about his biological roots in northern Minnesota. Adopted as a week-old Native American baby into a white family in White Oak, Iowa, Merrick grew up surrounded by white, white, and white. During his life, he'd looked out through a window into a world very different from himself. Then peering back through that same window into himself, he found an empty room without furniture or artifacts of the past. His parents, Betty and Philip Jarnovan, were devout Quakers. Childless, the couple adopted and raised Merrick on a small farm where he was loved and cared for, exposed to white culture and protected from his heritage. Growing up, Merrick knew he was native. His black hair, coffee eyes, and skin color could not hide that prima facie evidence from the community and the children he grew up around. He was an outlier, a black sheep in a very white flock. School kids and neighbors called him chief, but he'd heard much worse. Injun, Tonto, Redskin, Mohawk Merrick, and Tomahawk. In high school, Merrick decided to embrace and live his heritage. He grew his hair long and wore it in braids or a ponytail, bringing on more teasing and name-calling. But in his mid-teens, Merrick had grown into the body of a tall, strong man. Their name-calling was met with physical force. A punch in the nose or mouth silenced most. His senior year, Merrick played football, becoming a powerful running back who could surge through the line and break tackles to score. His season went well until the night he misheard a play call during the game. Running the ball up the middle, a pulling guard flattened him, causing the ball to pop loose. A defensive linebacker picked up the ball and ran for a touchdown. Coming off the field, his coach grabbed his face mask and shouted, What was that, chief? You may have cost us the game, dumb engine. By the time the crowd noticed the sideline disturbance, the coach lay knocked out cold on the ground. Merrick walked to the locker room and left school, never to return again. Thirty years later, a cold Sunday in January, Merrick discovered the secret to his past. Caring for an elderly friend of his deceased parents, 48-year-old Merrick learned about his biological father. Millie Martin shared with him that his father, Devery Major, was an Anishinaabe from Redby, Minnesota. Devery had met and fallen in love with a cousin of Betty Jarnovan. Once the cousin, Miss Florence, delivered the newborn boy, she left Minnesota and turned the baby over to the childless couple, Betty and Phil Jarnovan. Devery Major never saw his son, never knew what happened to him. Merrick vowed that Sunday afternoon that he would search out his father, his past, his real family. A week later, Merrick set out in his 88 Dodge pickup and drove to Redby, Minnesota. Once there, he asked around and learned that his father Devery had been killed in a car accident between Brainerd and Crosby, Minnesota five years earlier. Merrick also discovered he had one other surviving family member, his grandfather, Harley Major. He found and met the old man, stayed two weeks, and left determined to return. Merrick Jarnovan interred 49 when he moved into his grandfather's cabin. He intended on being his grandfather's caregiver in the old man's declining years. But at 89 years, Pop's Major needed a companion more than a caregiver. Both Merrick and Pops were single, without surviving family. They enjoyed the solitude of the cabin, nestled a half-mile off an old logging road west of Redby. The cabin, like the two men, was basic and without modern conveniences and distractions. They woke with the sun, worked at collecting wood, gardening, fishing, and hunting in the fall. In the evenings, they stayed outside around the fire pit, watching the stars telling stories, and discussing their dreams. Pops believed in dreams. He claimed the Creator spoke to him and to most people through dreams. He said most people couldn't hear the Creator, couldn't recognize the message because they were too busy becoming cluttered with daily life. For an 89-year-old man, Pops made moved quickly and could outwork Merrick at chopping and splitting wood. Merrick remembered watching the old man shimmy up a birch tree moving from branch to branch like a simian creature, smiling and calling out to Merrick about what he could see from the treetop. His grandfather reminded him of Grandpa Reaches from the movie Thunderheart. When Merrick told Pops about the character, he responded, Huh. He must be Sue. Merrick noticed that Pops prayed frequently, though not necessarily aloud. When he'd asked Pops about what he was thinking, Pops answered, I'm praying. Merrick noted the look in the old man's eyes. He learned to recognize his prayerfulness. When Merrick fell ill three months later, Pops touched his neck below the jawline. Right there, the old man said. You need to see a doctor at the clinic. Merrick never knew whether Pops' foreknowledge came from prayer or a dream but he went to the clinic that afternoon and was sent to Bemidji for tests at Sanford Medical. Merrick's diagnosis came three weeks after the tests. Two needle biopsies, inconclusive. An incision biopsy sent to Mayo delivered the verdict. Hodgkin's lymphoma. Dr. James, an oncologist at Sanford, laid out the six-month process of chemotherapy and the survival rate. After CT scans and a bone marrow test, Merrick was diagnosed stage 2, lymph nodes affected on both sides of his neck and sternum region. His chemotherapy regimen started the following week, treatment every other Friday until he'd completed 12 infusions. Four days after he heard the wolf howl, after he dreamed of a chestnut horse running circles, after eating Uncle Walter's medicine bread, Merrick Jarnovan felt somewhat recovered from his fourth treatment. By now his hair was gone, his long salt and pepper tresses a memory along with his eyelashes and brows. He ate Pops' daily meals, stews of vegetables and deer, soups of beans and broth, and Uncle Walter's medicine bread. That early afternoon Pops entered the cabin and announced, We need to take a trip, a journey to see horses. I've never been around horses, never ridden one, Merrick said. I used to ride horses a long time ago, Pop said. Horses are life. Merrick studied the old man. Nothing but a smile, a knowing look. Okay, Merrick said. Where are we going to see horses? To be determined, the old man said. I'll figure that out and let you know. I used to ride racehorses at Fawner Park. Racehorses? you mean an exercise rider? A jockey, the old man said. Madness racing into the wind. You know you're alive on one of those horses. You remind me of one of the horses, Merrick, tougher and horseradish. Tougher and what? Tougher and horseradish was the horse's name, the old man said. A chestnut gelding, the fastest horse I ever rode. Why hadn't you ever told me this, Merrick asked. No need. Never came up. But I see that horse when I look at you. How so? Tougher and horseradish was fast, but a rider had to know how to ride him. How to show him he could run. How he could beat other horses. Could beat the odds. And I remind you of the horse? Merrick shook his head. Pop smiled then became quiet, looking out the window. I can see that horse now, me on his back, my knees in his withers. Merrick watched the old man, thought about what he just heard. I want to go on that trip, Merrick said. I want to see horses with you. The morning of the trip, Merrick awoke from another dream about the horse and the wolf. He clearly saw the horse trotting in the full moonlight but this time there was a rider atop. He thought the rider was Pops as a younger man. He heard the wolf howl. This time the wolf showed itself, a dark shadow against the tree line. The rider rode past the wolf, greeting it with a wave. The rider circled, then stopped and shouted, BUDU ingoses, MAKA DE MA ingan." The wolf walked closer than the rider rode off, leaving the shadow of a man where the wolf had stood. When Merrick woke, he tried to remember the phrase, but he struggled to pronounce the words. Pops entered the cabin carrying two identical cowboy hats. Dressed in blue jeans and a western shirt, he set the hats on the table where Merrick sipped his first coffee. How are you feeling this morning? Pops asked. Ready for our trip? Sure, Merrick said. Is Uncle Walter going too? No, just you and me. Uncle Walter's afraid of horses. A real Nakoda warrior, eh? Merrick smiled and studied the old hats on the table. He looked at Pops in his wide grin. I found these in the shed. Your father and I wore these many years ago. You'll need something to cover your head, cowboy. Merrick examined the hats. Pops had never shown him anything belonging to his father. Seldom talked about him except vague references. He'd never pushed the subject, fearing it would make the old man sad. Which one did my dad wear? he asked. The old man pointed to the hat next to Merrick's cup. Try it on, grandson. If it doesn't fit, we'll buy you one on the way. Merrick placed the sweat-stained hat on his head. Without his hair, the hat was a little loose but comfortable. Fits perfectly, Merrick said. So where are we going to see horses? We're going to Sonny Keene's horse ranch between Crosby and Brainerd. Sonny trains horses, some race horses, too. Your dad worked for him at the ranch. Your dad was a great horseman. He could train a green horse like nobody I've ever seen. The drive will take two and a half hours. I loaded the truck. We're ready to go once you're dressed. All right, cowboy, Merrick said. Let's hit the road. Enough of the cowboy talk, Pops said. Remember, we're the good guys. The drive to Brainerd took closer to three hours. Pops would stop the truck to point out places along the way. They gassed the truck in Bemidji, stopped for coffee and donuts in Niswá. Climbing back into the truck, Merrick recounted his second dream to Pops, where he'd seen the horse. Its rider and the wolf. So you saw the wolf? Pop said. A black one? Yes. The rider called out to it, said something in Ojibwe. Do you remember what he said? Something like, "Budu ngosis. That means greetings, my son, Pop said. Anything else? He followed with. Makade Ma Ingen Black Wolf. He said it all in one phrase. Do you understand what the dream means? Do I understand what your dreams mean? Of course, but do you? Merrick studied the old man. Pop stared at the road ahead, expressionless. Can you tell me the meaning? You'll have to enter the dream again. You'll figure it out at some point. When they reached Brainerd, Pops turned off Highway 371 and headed northeast on 210. Merrick sat sullen the rest of the drive, thinking about his father. He wondered why fate had never allowed him to meet the man who had given him life. He'd once met his biological mother, Miss Florence, at a family gathering, but he'd never known she was his mother. A family secret. A cruel joke that everyone knew about except him. He pulled a photo from his jacket pocket and studied his father's face. He could see the resemblance to himself, to Pops. What was my father like? he asked. What was your father like? Pops repeated. Where do I begin? Your father was a good man, heartbroken, but good and honorable. He never married because he was heartbroken when your mother left with you. He moved in with me. We took care of each other, did the same things you and I do now, but he grieved your loss. To the point I was afraid it would kill him. He was that upset? Words can't express his grief, Pop said. I would watch him walk across the pasture to the tree line. He would sit and cry. Each morning as he walked to that same place and offered tobacco and a prayer to the Creator, I can see him in my mind's eye, standing straight, raising his left arm skyward to pray. When he finished, he'd transfer the tobacco to his right hand and scatter it under the trees. Merrick thought about what Pops had told him while they drove out of Brainerd. They drove past tall stands of pine interrupted by meadows, then more trees. Was my dad an alcoholic? Pops turned and studied his grandson. Merrick could see the hurt in the old man's eyes. No, your father was not an alcoholic. That sounds like a white man's stereotype. I'm sorry, Pops, Merrick said. I've heard you talk about the number of alcoholics you know. It made me wonder. Your dad went through a time of drinking, but he could see what it did to him. How unhappy he was. How it affected his spirit. He quit completely and never started again. Where did he have the accident? Along this road, Pop said. I'll take you to the spot once we leave Sonny's ranch. We'll say a prayer. Pop slowed and turned down a narrow, sandy road. Merrick could smell the pine trees that framed the lane to Sonny Keene's ranch. The tree line gave way to a series of open pastures where a herd of horses grazed, looking up at their approach. The farmstead was shaped like a horseshoe. A house in the center, two large barns, a smaller shop, and a feed shed. Two corrals stood adjacent to each barn. A tall middle aged man stood in the center of one corral, holding a lead rope in one hand, trotting the horse in a circle. He wore old jeans tucked into buckaroo boots, a green John Deere farm cap, with a shock of gray hair hanging down to his shoulders. Is Sonny native? Merrick asked. Well, yeah. He's half-white-earth Bellacourt. His mother was a bellicourt and his dad was an Irishman from Edmonton, Alberta. Didn't I tell you that? Good people. Sonny noticed the men while turning the horse in a circle. He waved and unclipped the lead rope, stroked the horse and approached them. He waved at Pops but stopped in his tracks when he saw Merrick. Pops and Merrick took off their hats. Pops walked up to Sonny and hugged him. Hey, Sonny boy, it's good to see you. Been a long time. It's good to see you too, Sonny said. He glanced toward Merrick. I thought that was Devery for a minute. Who's your friend? Merrick Jarnovan. he's my grandson, Devery's boy. Sonny faced Merrick, reached out his hand, then pulled him close. You look like your father, he said. Man, I feel like I'm seeing a ghost. You're the long-lost son Devery talked about. You never met him, right? Merrick shook his head and looked down. We came to see your horses, Sonny, Pop said. I wanted Merrick to meet you. You were close to Devery like a brother. I'm not sure if I'd call him an older brother, maybe more like a father in some ways. He taught me a lot on how to handle horses. Patience, he'd say. Patience and kindness. Pops put his hat back on. Merrick did the same. We want to ride horses, Sonny. Do you have any horses for an old man and a greenhorn who's never ridden? Sonny nodded. Follow me to the barn. I'll get you saddled up. Thirty minutes later, Sonny led the two horses out of the barn. Pops mounted a black thoroughbred mare that Sonny had saddled with a racing saddle and irons. Merrick watched as Sonny walked, a ten-year-old chestnut gelding toward him, a western saddle on its back. Pops trotted the mare to an exercise track off in the distance. Talk to him, Merrick, Sonny said. Introduce yourself and touch his face and neck. Stroke him and whisper to him. You need to let him know you're a friend, that he shouldn't be afraid. Merrick approached and spoke softly, holding the halter running his hand along the gelding's jaw, down its neck. Sonny stepped away, watching Merrick and the horse's reaction. The chestnut was calm. Merrick could feel the calmness. He relaxed and kept whispering. His emotions began to well. He wanted to cry, but held back. Can I mount him? he asked. Sure, I'll give you a leg up. Left leg in the stirrup, then swing your right over. Good job. You look natural on the horse. Sonny gave Mary instructions on how to neck rein and turn the horse, then led him to an open pasture. Walk him first, then move to a trot. Once you've worked him a while, you can let him gallop if you feel comfortable with that. He likes a loose rein. Don't pull back too hard on him. What's his name? Night Dream, But I call him Knight. Sonny said, "Let's go, night dream, Merrick walked the horse around the pasture, watching pops on the distant exercise track, standing in the irons and breezing the horse. Merrick sat the gelding, thinking only about its movement beneath him. He closed his eyes for a moment and pictured the scene from his dream. He wondered if he was the one on the horse and whether his father had ever ridden the same chestnut five years earlier. I want to trot, he thought. I want to run. Without him saying a word, the gelding broke into a trot, traveling the fence line where the jack pines bordered the field. Merrick remembered the wolf in his dream. Run, he thought. Night Dream galloped, building speed, then slowing as he approached the fence, turning back toward the open pasture and running faster. The horse continued his circle of speed, and Merrick followed the rhythm of its gait. Whoa, night," Merrick said. The horse slowed to a trot, then a walk. Merrick met Pops and Sunny outside the barn. Pops was walking the black mare, cooling her down and stopping by the water bucket Sunny held for her to drink. You look like a horseman, grandson, Pops said. You'd have made your father proud the way you worked that gelding. Never rode a horse. Ha! Merrick smiled as Sunny took the reins. Harley, do you mind walking this horse off while I show Merrick something in the tack room? No problem, Pop said, tying off the horse and grabbing the gelding's halter. Merrick followed Sonny into the barn. They stopped at the tack room. Sonny pointed to a framed picture on the wall. That's your dad on Night Dream, Merrick. Night was your dad's horse. I've kept him around in his memory. I want you to take the picture and I have something else. Sonny opened a drawer and pulled out a belt with a large silver buckle. This belt was your dad's, too. Pops wanted me to hang on to it since I'd given it to your dad for Christmas. Merrick handled the smooth black leather. He looked at the fancy silver work on the buckle, the head of a wolf in the center. I want you to have the belt. Wear it with pride like your father wore it. What's with the wolf in the center, Merrick asked. Does it mean something? It did to your father. To the Anishinaabe, the wolf is like a brother. That's why they banned hunting wolves at Red Lake. They see the wolf as being like them, driven from the land, chased and hunted, killed for their hair. Killing a wolf is like killing one of us. Remember that. Merrick took the belt and the picture, carrying them to the pickup. He touched the belt buckle, rubbed his thumb over the image of the wolf. This time, he couldn't control his emotion. He wept alone. He understood his dream. He knew his father was watching over him, knowing how his long-lost son struggled. The cancer. The sense of never knowing a part of his own being. Sonny and Merrick stayed with the horses, and Merrick prayed. He closed his eyes, lifted his left arm to the sky, then shouted the words from his dream. Boodoo! Makadema Ingen!
1: Thanks to Claude, Doug, and Dennis for sharing their stories with us today. Thanks to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, and thanks to you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Your iTunes reviews and Twitter mentions are as appreciated as ever, so keep those coming, and tune back in in two weeks for more Secondhand Stories. Next time on Secondhand Stories... Some kids are just up to no good, while others seem to stumble upon trouble. But, kids will be kids, right? Ponder this with us while listening to Fake Things Aren't Real by Derek Salinas-Lazarski, and Everyone Hated Miss Loretta, by Susanna Solomon.